Lord, as we look to the Word of God, as we come to this 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we thank You for what You have revealed in Your Word. We pray, Father, that we might be edified by it, and we would continue to grow as a church. Lord, the matter before us as we parallel our life with the Corinthians is one of great importance as we draw close to You and as we gather around the table uh, to identify with Christ and to rejoice together in His presence and with one another. Lord, how vital it is that we uh, learn to discern Your will and Your purpose for us in the pursuit of holiness. We pray in behalf of those who know not Christ are separated from Him. Those who know it and those who maybe don't. I pray, Father, that You would continue to open blind eyes and do what You alone can do to bring saving light to those who do not see it. We come to You. We appeal to You. We pray that the Word of God would go forth with power, with conviction, that You will grow us and mature us as we come to soak in the Scriptures today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. It starts the moment that you trust Christ as your Savior. The moment that we are born again and united to Jesus, we begin learning how to relate to this world in a new way. Honestly, it's a tricky undertaking. It takes time. It takes growth and moral skill. It takes spiritual discernment. So we're helped in this journey on a conceptual level to think of ourselves as spiritual pilgrims now that we are in Christ. As sojourners. As aliens. As ambassadors. While we stop along the way for rest and refreshment, our nose is always pointed to the journey's end. We never see ourselves as settled permanently in place because heaven is our destiny, not this world. While faithful salt and light citizens of the world, we are always and above all else representing and seeking the interest of Christ's kingdom. But the conceptual must filter down into the nooks and crannies of everyday life. And this is where it gets tricky. This is where Christians differ with one another on how to pursue holiness, how to relate to the world in which we live. How to relate as loyal citizens of Christ in a world that's given to us for our enjoyment. Where and when does our participation in the world's systems and ways compromise our loyalty to Christ? These are questions we're all asking. How can we remain in the world, yet not of the world? Not isolated from the world, but insulated from evil. Where shall we land between the, pole, the extreme poles of that isolation on the one hand, the hermits tucked away in their monasteries, not touched, they think, by the world about them? On the other hand are the libertarian Christian groups who view the godless world as a child eyes a playground. Explore every piece of equipment. 
Go wherever your desires lead you. The world is the Lord's in its abundance. Enjoy every aspect as you wish. Between these poles, God-honoring believers land in different places. We draw different conclusions. And sometimes we find it hard to understand one another. But we can know on the authority of of this passage that is before us today that there are indeed lines that we must not cross. The world is always luring us over those lines into the path of idolatry. And behind such temptations are dark, demonic forces luring us away from loyalty to Christ and His truth. Paul's counsel to the Corinthian church in chapter 10 reveals that this issue is not merely theoretical. It filters into the narrow gaps of life to where we plop our seats and what we shovel down our gullets. It's that earthy. Remember that Throughout chapters 8 through 10, Paul is slowly working toward the climax of the instruction that we find here now finally in chapter 10. He and the Corinthian church were at odds about believers eating meals at pagan temples which dotted the Corinthian landscape, serving as the restaurants of the day, but also as places of worship. As Paul narrows in now to the climax of his instruction, he starts with the overarching concept in verse 14. Now, I would draw this principle from that as we look at antidotes to fellowship with the world. First of all, always be prepared to run from idolatry. As we strive to understand where we land on that scale, what draws us to Christ, what demonstrates loyalty, what is crossing the line into fellowship with the world, this is where we need to start. Always be prepared to run from idolatry. Verse 14, he continues, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Therefore, connects this command to the passage that we considered last week regarding Israel's fall into idolatrous ways in in her wilderness wanderings. The point is, don't follow Israel's example. We'll return to that in just a moment, but first that word flee, therefore flee. The form of the Greek imperative is a present tense, present active. It yields that idea of always fleeing, always being prepared to flee. And that's why I put it this way. We must know as Christians that idolatrous temptations will waylay us all along our journey home. That will be there and we need to have an orientation that I will run from idolatry we must not toy with it we must not build a tolerance for it or foolishly fail to anticipate temptations to idolatry we must learn to detect temptations to turn to false gods for comfort for relief for pleasure for happiness for self-satisfaction there are sources out there that continue to present themselves to us we need to habitually run from false beliefs from selfish ambitions and sensual pleasures that violate god's law and his counsel to us this is the orientation of a growing christian 
So thinking back contextually to verse 7 in Exodus 32, Israel ate a religious meal and ended up the night in unrestrained sensual partying. Don't follow them. Flee idolatry. In verse 8, Numbers 25, Israel, Israelite men yielded to the allure of Moabite cult prostitutes, which is re- referenced here in verse 8 as sexual immorality, a general term. Flee from that, he says. Know this. Know the temptations are there in this world. Run. Don't stick around. Verses 9 and 10, he gives two occasions of Israel's grumbling spirit against God's provision and the hardships of following him in the desert. Run from this idolatry. To look at your life, to look at your circumstances and say, life stinks. It's all against me. Where is God? This grumbling spirit. Flee from it. Be ready always to run away. So always prepare to flee the trap of idolatry in whatever form it takes, is his point. Our loyalty to Christ is evidenced by our willingness to flee the worship of wealth, health, sensuality, stupefaction, pride, ease, and on and on it goes. There is a light and darkness distinction between Christ's people and this world. And so we should always be willing to flee from idolatry. Always prepared. Now the second point, more at issue here, that's verse 14 serves as kind of a banner over this section. But now the point we'll really dig in deeply here is secondly, to learn to detect lines of idolatrous fellowship. So I'm in, in preparation, in readiness I will flee idolatries wherever we find them, but we must in that process learn to detect lines of idolatrous fellowship. We'll work this out here, and he does in three illustrations, the third being his his, really heart of what he's saying here in chapters 8 through 10. But in exhibit A, he speaks of the fellowship that we have at the Lord's table. Verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. This almost verges on the sarcastic. The Corinthian church saw themselves as quite wise, quite capable. And so he says, all right, I'm going to talk to you as I would talk to sensible people. The people who are able to discern. They can draw the right conclusions. They can make wise decisions. Think about it. Think about the table of the Lord where you commune with Him. Verse 16, the cup a blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Our children would be, we'd even know, our littlest children, what this means. The cup of blessing. The bread that we break. Speaking here, obviously, of the Lord's table. The cup of blessing, referring to that cup that Jesus lifted up at the last Passover meal. The leader of that meal would bless that cup, drink from it, and then pass it around. And to this day, Christ's followers lift a cup of remembrance and communion as we observe the Lord's death until He comes. And then breaking the bread at the start of a Passover meal, a single unleavened loaf of bread was held high. It was kind of like a big thick cracker. It was held high, it was blessed as well, and then broken into pieces and handed out to those who were participating at the meal. 
So Christ also blessed the bread, broke it in pieces, distributed it at the Last Supper. And to this day, we eat the small portion of bread in remembrance and communion. And most significantly here, when Christ's church eats the bread and drinks the cup, you notice here in verse 16 that it is a participation in the blood of Christ and the body of Christ sacrificed for us. It's participation. That Greek word is koinonia. We often translate it, maybe more commonly translate it, fellowship. There is a fellowship that takes place, a communion that takes place at that table. So we should easily discern that the Lord's Supper draws us into fellowship with the risen Christ and with the body of Christ. It celebrates what we have in common with one another, which is Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us. This is further stressed in verse 17 where he continues, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This verse has confused commentators from the time it was written apparently, but it's a little hard to know what he's saying exactly, but the overall picture is quite obvious. No confusion there. His words uh, meaning that the bread broken into pieces pictures our oneness in Christ, our solidarity, and there it is again as participants. Greek word koinonia, fellowship. Our fellowshipping together as believers in Christ. It's far more than ingesting food for pleasure or health. The Lord's Supper is worship. And the Corinthians know this quite well. Hold that thought, Paul says. But first, let's go back in time even further to exhibit B. You know the Lord's table. You participate. You fellowship there with Christ and His people. But let's go back to fellowship in Old Covenant sacrifices. Verse 18, he adds this to his argument. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? By eating the sacrifices, Paul refers to the fellowship meals that the worshipers would eat together after they sacrificed the animal to the Lord in worship. But eating the sacrifice meat, as they did that, they are what you see it again, they are participants. They participate in the altar. Same Greek word, koinonia, fellowship. So they proclaimed their identification with God's altar of atonement through a sacrifice. Now no member of the Corinthian church would find fault with anything that Paul has said here. He's absolutely right. He set them up to push them now where they don't want to go. As they think of the table, of course, it's fellowship. As they think of the Old Testament sacrifices, it was fellowship with the altar. That is, with that place of atonement that Yahweh had provided through a substitute. Of course. Well, that leads to exhibit C. And that's meals at pagan temples. Here it gets really quiet in the assembly, I have a feeling, as this letter was read. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? 
This verse takes us right back to chapter 8, verse 4. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. He said that at the beginning. Don't get him wrong here now at the conclusion. Am I saying that idols are something? No, idols are no thing. They don't exist. They're imaginary. I'm not changing my thought there, but verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. What is behind the worship at pagan temples? It's not gods. They are no things. What drives their activity and the specific forms of their false worship that is commended by their presence? Paul discerns that the motivation behind the worship of false gods, of idols, the motivation behind the sensual cult prostitution that was taking place in those temples is an outright rebellion against the one true and living God. That's what's taking place throughout our city, he says to the Corinthians. Fueling the sensual, self-serving, self-righteous rituals at these temples is none other than Satan and his legions. Learning to detect idolatrous fellowship, he doesn't point to dead idols, but to what is behind these places and these gatherings. So Paul is discerning that where one sits... And what one eats, that what happens in the precincts of a pagan temple constitutes a participation with demons. There's the word again, koinonia fellowship. You're entering into communion with demons. Now Paul is not just blowing smoke here. He's he's not just making this up on the fly and saying this is just my idea. He does not somewhat uncharacteristically quote what I think he's drawing from, but here it is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Israel forsook God who made him, and I should say first of all, Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses. So this is the one who has led Israel now through the whole journey of the wilderness wanderings to the verge of the promised land. And as he thinks back on Israel's history, he says they forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. This is what Israel did. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. Notice gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. We see the connection there with what is appears on the surface to be nothing more than a worship of nothing. Idols that do not actually exists or gods that do not exist which is actually a sacrifice and a participation a fellowship with demons some translations by the way don't read demons 
That's the Hebrew word. They try to help out the English reader by speaking of false gods, but I think the distinction between them is important. And by trying to help out the English reader, what they do is ruin what Paul's doing here, I think. So if your text says a false gods or idols or something like that, know that the word is actually demons. This is shocking to the Corinthian church. So just as their participation in the Lord's Supper is fellowship with Christ, they would rejoice in that as true believers. But now they're coming to understand that eating at pagan temples is participation with demons. This is Paul's thesis. It might seem like one is simply eating a meal with friends and family. Indeed, certain Christians may not have a twinge of conscience eating there. But as we grow closer to Christ and begin to learn to discern the connections and where fellowship, where the line of fellowship is crossed, Paul argues that they're actually worshiping demons. Those who are celebrating behind the scenes are not dead imaginary gods, of course. But it's a demonic realm. And so they had to choose, verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This word of instruction, again, must have hit them very hard. The pagan temples were gathering places for birthday parties. They were coming-of-age parties were held there. This was a place for business lunches and friendship building. You're telling us to go there in that environment, in that place, to eat that meal is a fellowship with demons. The implications are heavy. But these temples were so integrally wrapped up with demonic forces that every sacrifice made there was a sacrifice that caused the demonic realm to shriek with glee. This is not Jesus' spot. This is our spot. Here, our Father, Lucifer, is praised, and we rejoice. Flee idolatry, he says to them. You're toying with it. We'll return to that point by way of application momentarily, but just to close his thought, verse 22 We have a third point, and that is cautiously avoid provoking God to jealousy. This again is an orientation, as is the first. Be always ready to flee idolatry. Do not provoke God to jealousy. And so in between those two is this discernment of where do I cross the line into idolatrous fellowship. But first of all, cautiously avoid provoking God to jealousy. Again, we detect here Deuteronomy 32. Verse 16, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods and the sacrifice to demons behind it. He adds then in verse 21, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So Paul, I think again, echoing the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 34, says the Lord shed His blood to save us. He has called us out of the world as His beloved children. And His love is too strong, too pure, too holy to watch the Corinthians dine in fellowship at the table of demons. 
and not to be provoked with righteous, holy jealousy. You are mine. I have purchased you. I have called you out of this world. And here you are, fellowshipping as the demons shriek with glee. The Lord's anger is excited. It's adultery. It's infidelity. Come out from their presence. The growing Christian then will shrink at the thought of provoking the Lord's holy jealousy for His people. The people redeemed by nothing less than Christ's blood. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? It seems to point back to chapter 8 and the strong Christians who were not only eating at pagan temples, they were pressuring those of more tender conscience to join them. We are the strong. Let us bring you the weak along and bring you into the pagan temples. It's fine. There's nothing going on here. They're not real. It's just meat. It's just a meal. Paul says, are you stronger than Christ? It's it's, it's irony. It's, It's a foolish thought. But he calls them to consider carefully. Now, This passage is light years from our setting, isn't it? Uh, The restaurants of our day are not designed, they're not dedicated to pay homage to false gods. I've, through the years, eaten in a couple places where I've seen a little idol on a shelf, an incense or some sort of food offerings laid up there. Maybe you walk in, for instance, to an Indian restaurant and you see a shrine to a god. Well, the idolatry of that, those restaurant owners has got nothing to do with the diners. Restaurants in our day are made, they make food, they feed people, and they hope to make money doing it. That's it. Our restaurants are not temples built to venerate some god. So, Take a deep breath if anybody thought here we were going to say, don't ever go to a restaurant. That's, that's not the point. What is the point? As we strive to honor the Lord in our day, the battle lines are drawn differently and there is much debate on where they should be drawn. There was debate in the Corinthian church. There's going to be debate in every Christian church that's thinking. In the last several generations in America, Christians have wrestled with things such as what I'm going to list here. This doesn't cover it all. But the appropriateness of doing business with slave owners or avowed racists. What do we do there? Where do we cross the line into fellowship with the demonic realm? Christians have debated appropriate dress and hairstyles. Attendance at movies, dances, plays, horse races, and concerts. They have argued for and against card playing, the use of alcohol, smoking, gambling, swimming in mixed company, and believe it or not, wearing wire-rimmed glasses. (laughs) Just look for people with really gray hair and ask them what that means, and they probably know. This long story includes many foolish arguments 
ridiculous measures of enforcement. The invention of arbitrary and legalistic standards. Heated debates, slanderous words, political machinations, and it might seem about as much unrighteousness is produced as righteousness in all of it. And so perhaps we've come to a generation today where the thinking is largely forget it all. Just do what's right in your own eyes. Go with your conscience and let no one else ever say a word. Well, that's just not what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 10, is it? And so a few modifying comments. First, with all of our folly, all of our silliness, all of our mistakes... Never criticize a Christian who is genuinely striving for holiness. Respect and extend grace to any believer of any stripe who seeks to resist our world's godless influences. As mixed up as we may sometimes be, give thanks wherever you see a Christian striving to please the Lord. There aren't many of them. I read a sermon this week from a source and group that I would not track with or fellowship with, and the conclusions of distinction from the world I found ridiculous, arbitrary, wrong-headed in every way, legalistically oriented and wrong, or whatever. I thank God there's somebody out there trying. Don't be critical. There is something we should criticize when it comes to legalism and false standards of righteousness. But be gracious to those that are striving for holiness. Secondly, respect the conscience of those who draw tighter lines of application than you do. First, they could be right. Second, you want no part of leading them to violate their conscience. By ridicule or invitation in some way to break down the conscience that they have that says this is off limits for me. Receive them without arguing. Thirdly, do not judge those who land in a place that is less restrictive than what you think is best. A judgmentalism is poison in this situation. You can share your opinion graciously, but if they draw a wider circle, love them, do not judge them by your standard. Know that they will answer to God ultimately and admit that you are not absolutely certain what God thinks. There are matters in Scripture that are clear. It's a matter of loyalty to obey them and sin to disobey them. But I'm talking about those areas where we just don't honestly, ultimately, finally know. Don't judge those who draw a different standard. Leave them with God. Be willing to reason. Be willing to talk. Stand for your position. But love them. Number four. Realize that as we pursue Christ, almost all of us will see something as wrong that we will later come to believe is not. 
and we'll lay aside something we once thought was fine and come to the certainty that it is sin. Give your brothers and sisters grace to grow in that area and know that perhaps a mature believer is just ahead of you in the conclusions that he or she has drawn. Be respectful of that. Understand that. And a word number five to children. Understand that relating to a godless world requires spiritual discernment and God has given you Christian parents to help steer you. They will not always get it right. The guidelines that they lay down, the direction that they lay down, it may not always be right. They may restrict you in ways that you think are just plain crazy. But remember, you will not always live with them. In fact, you won't live with them very long at all. It's just a short season of life should God extend your life to normal limits. If they limit your involvement in some activities and forbid others, even when you cannot understand why, respect it. It's a tricky business. And there's coming a day when you'll realize, maybe more than you do now, that they love God and they love you. Let them do their job. A day will come when you will realize that that job's a lot harder than you thought. Don't make it harder. Just hang in there. Now, all of that said, we learn from this passage that there are indeed places and activities that lead us into fellowship with the world. We must have that category. It is not easy, if usually even possible, to identify those places and those activities universally and authoritatively. Paul has taken a long time to get to the conclusion here, chapters 8, chapters 9, chapter 10, before he comes to the conclusion that I really believe this is not a matter of you go one way or the other. This is a matter of fellowship with demons. It's immensely concerning to him that that's where they are eating as if it's nothing. But as we do that same kind of work, we also need to be patient and thoughtful and learn to discern and detect the lines of idolatrous fellowship that we dare not cross. There are venues, there are activities that bring pleasure to Satan. And that's what we need to think through as we learn to discern. For example, there might be differing conclusions based on circumstances about whether or not a godly believer should attend a same-sex ceremony. But does not joining the festivities and partying at the reception compromise, comprise fellowship with a godless world? Does it not? Who is celebrating this rejection of God's truth? It's not the Lord. Is not the demonic world dancing at the reception and singing in celebratory defiance of God and His will? 
Another example, how can it be anything but fellowship with the world to attend, let's say, a concert or nightclub where the songs that are sung, the music that is being played, is utterly dishonoring to God? Where sensual dancing is calibrated to excite all manner of sin, and where drunkenness and drug use is not only allowed but encouraged. How can we have our seat in that place and think that behind the scenes the Lord is rejoicing? Does this not provoke the Lord's jealousy? Now these examples that I offer would find probably, I think, wide agreement among the members of our assembly. There are places where you can go that have a demonic vibe. And we want to be careful to separate ourselves from those scenes lest we fellowship with the demonic realm. But there are many other scenarios. There are many other practices in our world that aren't as easy to discern and to settle. We are at least reminded in this passage of the importance of striving for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We will enter into His presence someday and the question that will prevail is does this one honor Christ? Have you lived your life for His honor and for His glory? And In that moment, we'll be very thankful that we avoided certain scenes. So let us then gather at this table and declare that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ soul and body. We may not always agree. We may even have struggles within our own minds of where the lines are, to not, are crossed and not crossed. But when we come to this table, may there be nothing that holds us back. But here at this table to say that I belong to Jesus Christ, soul and body. He is my Savior. I identify with and fellowship and commune with Christ's sacrifice of atonement for my sin. And here I rejoice in my oneness with Him and His body. So let us fellowship with the risen Christ. Let us fellowship with His redeemed body as we renew our commitment to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. Father, aid this church in doing so. While we think of this world and what we must avoid, may we have the very opposite orientation here at this table and come willingly courageously because of what Christ has done, with joy of heart and thanksgiving, with a broken heart to think that our sin put Christ on the cross, and yet with a heart of a pilgrim. Set on the fact that Christ will come again. And Lord, I pray that at this table there would be a purifying effect in each of our souls. It carries well beyond this gathering today and into our waking world meet with us here at this table may we commune with christ as your body and grow us and purify us we pray through this process through this celebratory commemorative meal of fellowship
through Christ we pray. Amen.